A few years ago, I visited Prague, the architecturally stunning capital of the Czech Republic. While there, I visited the Museum of Communism, an absolutely amazing museum that details both the horrors and also the crushing mundaneness of living under a communist system, as the former people of Czechoslovakia had for over 40 years. After this brilliant yet kind of harrowing experience, I went to the gift shop. One of the books on display was a small slim book called The Power of the Powerless, Citizens Against the State in Central Eastern Europe, written by Václav Havel, a figure I'd never heard of before. But I assumed that he was some sort of dissident intellectual during the communist era. I needed something to read for the plane home, and the book was really easy to fit in my bag, so I decided to give Václav a try. Sadly, I slept home in the plane and didn't read Havel, but I learned that Havel was a dissident intellectual, as I guessed. He was a poet, a playwright, and a writer. But what I hadn't guessed correctly was that he was not just some sort of intellectual layabout who just wrote books all day. No, not at all. He actually became the first ever president of the Czech Republic in 1993. From poet to president is a pretty impressive career trajectory. So I decided to give his book a try, and I instantly became an admirer of Havel. While not an explicit libertarian by any means, Havel was definitely a lover of freedom. His life and writings are a lesson in the practice of living in truth, a term Havel cribbed from Alexander Solzhenitsyn and made the center of his philosophy. Havel's essay, The Power of the Powerless, is one of the most insightful diagnoses and critiques of totalitarianism, a word that's often debated and discussed by those who have little experience of its misery. But Havel didn't just accurately label the problem. He also had a plan to remedy it. And unlike most high-minded philosophers, Havel actually delivered on his promise. In this episode, we're going to talk about how a dissident, chain-smoking intellectual helped lead a revolution against the communist state, and won, all without firing a single shot. Vaclav Havel was born in Prague, Czechoslovakia, on October 5th, 1936. Havel was not born into hardships by any means. His father and grandfather were both highly successful entrepreneurs in the construction industry. Havel's mother was no slouch either. She was the daughter of a diplomat and a journalist, working as a visual artist and designer. But despite all of this familial success, life was not going to be easy for Havel. In 1948, the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia, with the backing of the Soviet Union, took control of the country, launching their miserable four-decade-long rule. Anyone deemed too wealthy, or as the communists say, bourgeois, was persecuted and their property was taken by the oh-so-benevolent state. Because of his family's reputation and status, Havel and his younger brother Ivan were barred from any form of higher education. They were to live like good proletariats, working manual labour jobs in factories for the good of society. Coming from a highly educated intellectual family, Havel applied to colleges with humanities programs to develop his budding interest in theatre and film. Under normal circumstances, a student like Havel would be accepted at nearly any university, but in communist Czechoslovakia, things were different. Havel was not accepted to any colleges because of his family's class status. Now normally, if you heard a university rejected someone based on class, you'd assume that the college is elitist, but in Czechoslovakia it was actually kind of the opposite. Havel's family and their original sin of being wealthy rubbed off on Ivan and Havel. Therefore, the communist state cut off any opportunities for the children of formerly prominent to rise again, knowing they might harbor mixed feelings about the regime that stole their parents' livelihood. With few options, Havel decided to study at the Faculty of Economics at the Czech Technical University in Prague, but left and undertook two years of mandatory military service. In between what he called the drudgery and mindlessness of drills, Havel began an amateur troupe, 
putting on plays that are meant to elevate the ideological consciousness of his fellow conscripts. But in reality, they always contain subtle yet subversive elements, something Havel will put to great effect later in his career as a playwright. After finishing his military service, Havel was certain in his passion for theatre and applied to the Academy of Performing Arts, where he was rejected, not based on merit, but again, due to familial connections and the educational blacklist of the communist state. He was eventually out to study, but only through correspondence. Havel found work at theatres in Prague, first as a stagehand, then as a dramaturge, and later as an assistant director. In 1963, Havel had his first ever full-length play entitled Garden Party Performed. The story follows the play of Hugo Pludek, an average man from a middle-class family. Like every parent, Hugo's family is worried about his future. To secure his future, they organise for Hugo to meet Mr. Kabbalas, an influential man with many connections. But Mr. Kalabas isn't busy attending a garden party held by the liquidation office. But refusing to miss this opportunity, Hugo is sent by his parents to mingle at the party as increasingly absurd scenarios unfold. Everyone who works at the liquidation office speaks in a highly ideological kind of manner, but their speech is devoid of any actual content. Hugo notices this and begins to speak just like the others through platitudes and cliches. Thanks to his mimicking, Hugo actually secures a position as head of the newly created Central Inauguration and Liquidation Committee. When Hugo returns home successfully, his parents actually barely recognize him. Hugo resembles the average person living in communist society, who had to constantly conform to an official ideology and way of speaking simply to keep their economic livelihood, making them unrecognizable to their family and friends. Havel's next play called The Memorandum deals with similar themes. The protagonist, Gross, due to work, has to use a new synthetic language called Pidep? I don't really know how to pronounce it. But either way, the whole idea is that it's supposed to be a more rational and logical language suited for the modern world, kind of like scientific socialism. The language represents how bureaucratic systems operate using a sort of official language that is blatantly not fit for purpose for any aspect of life but bureaucracy. Due to strict censorship, Havel could not directly criticize the communist state, so he had to use indirect methods, where the meaning is kind of hidden but also in broad daylight. Havel's play used an absurdist style to highlight the moral bankruptcy of the communist regime, which forces citizens not to innovate and create, but to conform. Havel's characters are often faced with the absurdity of the system they live under. They have to constantly rationalize their behavior and moral compromises in an attempt to conform, which inadvertently actually makes them part of the system that oppresses them. The oppressed become both the oppressor and the oppressed simultaneously. In 1968, the reformer Alexander Dubek was elected as the first secretary of the Communist Party in Czechoslovakia. He wanted to bring partial decentralization into the economy and loosen restrictions on the media, speech and travel. These reforms were not well received by the Kremlin, so half a million Soviet troops supplied by the Warsaw Pact occupied Czechoslovakia and put an end to what is now called the Prague Spring. Witnessing these events unfold, Havel no longer felt he could simply critique the system. He had now to oppose its machinations fully. In the first week of the occupation, Havel went on air on a radio station, urging people to resist against this foreign occupation, while also encouraging the protest and asking Western listeners to condemn the invasion. After the suppression of the Prague Spring, Havel was investigated for sedition and was banned from theatre. Many artists and intellectuals simply fled the country. The government actually offered Havel many chances to leave in exile to get rid of the troublemaker, but Havel consciously chose to stay in his home country, even though he easily could have made a living as a playwright abroad, where his plays had already been performed in places like New York. But Havel stayed firm, explaining that the solution of this human situation does not lie in leaving it. 
The quelling of the Prague Spring brought in a period euphemistically known as normalization, an effort to return to the status quo through oppression. Havel supported himself with theatre royalties until he was forced to take a job at a brewery as an unskilled labourer. During this time, he wrote three plays about the character Vanek, an insert for Havel. He publishes plays and writings in the Samizdat form. Samizdat is the Russian word for self-publishing. Throughout the socialist Eastern Bloc, there was stringent government control over all aspects of life, especially publishing possibly controversial works. By 1975, Havel began circulating his own Samizdat, sharing extracts from banned books, even writing an open letter to the Czechoslovakian president, criticizing the incumbent regime. Havel had become a prominent figure in the dissent movement through his writings and plays, but what really launched him as the head of it was his involvement in Charter 77. In Czechoslovakia, like the rest of the Eastern Bloc, as I said, nearly every aspect of life was tightly controlled and regulated by an all-powerful state. Not even music was the exception. In 1976, an alternative psychedelic rock band known as the Plastic People of the Universe were arrested for playing music without a license. To make an example out of the band members, they were put on trial and given lengthy sentences for not being conformists and having long hair. Though their music sounded jarring and odd to him at first, Havel appreciated that the band and that their music was free of any sort of ideological coercion. He wrote that, Here is something serious and genuine, an internally free articulation of an existential experience that everyone who had not come completely obtuse must understand. Havel helped organise protests in support of the band because he viewed the trial as a precedent that the state could incarcerate anyone for individual expression, political or not. In the aftermath of the trial, Czech intellectuals, artists and writers formed Charter 77, an informal civic initiative criticising the state for failing to respect human rights provisions the state itself had already agreed to, such as the 1960 Constitution of Czechoslovakia. The Charter was co-authored by Havel and demanded freedom of expression, religion, privacy and basic civil rights, whose codification would greatly contribute to the development of human society. One of the most amazing things about Charter 77 was that it was a priori open to all people of any political persuasion. Signatories came from the Catholic right all the way to the Trotskyist left. An unheard of alliance of socialists and religious leaders and intellectuals with wildly varying political opinions all came together, signed this document sharing a commitment to the rule of law and civic virtue. In December 1976, signatures were gathered and the Charter was then published in January of the new year. The government-run press tore into Charter 77, calling it anti-state, anti-socialist, demagogic, abusive piece of writing, written by traitors and renegades. Charter 77 was deemed an illegal document and was never fully published by any of the official state-run press. Signatories were punished using a wide array of tools available to the state. Many were fired from their jobs or had educational opportunities denied to their children, and some were exiled or lost citizenship. Havel, as a co-author and leading spokesperson, was arrested, but served a suspended sentence. It was during this time that Havel wrote his most famous and enduring work, The Power of the Powerless. The original project was for Polish and Czechoslovak writers to come together and write a book on freedom, with Havel's essay forming the basis of discussion for fellow authors. However, Havel was constantly under pressure from the secret police, who interrogated him on a daily basis. When Havel refused to cave, he was imprisoned. With Havel in prison, his essay was published in Samizdat form. Havel dedicated the essay to his philosophical mentor, Jan Potka, a fellow Charter 77 founding member who died of a stroke after an 11-hour interrogation by the secret police. 
Under the communist regime in Czechoslovakia, it's really important to stress, and stress again and again, that the state was an omnipresent force that used all sorts of political apparatus to make the population as passive as possible. We've already seen some of these means, spying on political distance, firing them from their jobs, denying their children education, and exile. But Havel noticed that there was something different from your traditional run-of-the-mill totalitarian state. Totalitarian systems operate by extinguishing all sorts of civil society to create the illusion that law and public opinion are effectively the same thing. This way, totalitarianism creates a system in which the state has a monopoly of power over every single aspect of life. That's where the name comes from. The all-encompassing nature of the state is totalitarian. But Havel recognized a new sort of totalitarianism had developed in the Eastern Bloc, especially in Czechoslovakia under normalization, where authorities did their utmost to normalize society. Like the brutal Stalinist regime, Havel notes, as classical totalitarianism, the Czechoslovakian government uses repression and fear, but now in a decidedly more anonymous, selective, and calculated manner. Though the state has an official narrative that is meant to be enforced by everyone, few, if any, even in the highest positions of power, really believe in this narrative. Increasingly, the government resembled a kind of pantomime of endless empty rituals to satiate the ego of the state, a non-existent entity. In the days of Stalin, the regime demanded the life, body, and soul of its citizens to fight for the vision of its leader. But what Havel calls neo- or post-totalitarianism is more about promoting passivity, fatalism, and cynicism that would make people retreat from political life into individual, private concerns. Though few accept the regime's narrative, even those embedded within the state, Havel observed that the system commands an incomparably more precise, logically structured, generally comprehensible, and in essence, extremely flexible ideology that in its elaborateness and completeness is almost a secularized religion. Havel explained that people must live within a lie. They need not accept the lie. It is enough for them to have accepted their life with it and in it. For by this very fact, individuals confirm the system, fulfill the system, make the system, are the system. Havel uses the now famous example of a shopkeeper who displays a sign with the communist slogan, Workers of the World Unite. The signs the shopkeeper hangs come from a shipment of goods provided by the state to sell. Regardless of his opinion, the shopkeeper hangs up the sign because of his fear of the state arresting him or ruining his children's future careers, if he doesn't. The sign thus becomes a symbol of both his submission and humiliation. Havel's example can be applied to people in all sorts of positions, not just shopkeepers. Colossal numbers of people in the communist states informing on one another, resulting in an environment of rigid ideological conformity to a hollow ideal that even those in power didn't really particularly believe. Havel explains that in a post-totalitarian system, not only does the system alienate humanity, but at the same time, alienated humanity supports the system as its own involuntary master plan, as a degenerate image of its own degeneration, as a record of people's own failures as individuals. The state that people begrudgingly serve is inadvertently supported by their own actions and words, which are manipulated through a complex web of anonymous power wielded by a state without any sort of limit. If communism was a crime, then every single citizen was now an accessory. But resistance seemed completely futile. Havel wrote, If there are, in essence, only two ways to struggle for a free society, that is, through legal means, through armed or unarmed struggle, then it should be obvious how inappropriate the latter is in the post-totalitarian system. Then what exactly is someone supposed to do against such a long-lasting and efficient tyranny? Havel's answer was to live in truth a phrase he borrowed from the famous Russian Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the author of one of Jordan Peterson's favourite books, The Gulag Archipelago. 
Havel also took his mentor Jan Potka's lesson to heart that individuals always carry responsibility with them, no matter what the situation. If the rest of society lies, so be it, but never join their ranks. Havel noticed that the state so harshly punished dissenters because they posed a threat to the system by pointing out its obvious flaws. Havel explained that if the pillars of society live in mendacity, then living in truth is a fundamental threat to them. Hence, this crime is punished more severely than any other crime. By refusing to submit humiliatingly to the lies of others, a person living in truth in their daily life stands outside the state-mandated culture of normal society. Havel explained that those at the top try to control every single person, but this is a fantasy. You could never do it. There will always be room for people to refuse to conform. Living in truth for Havel was a possibility open to all people. However, that doesn't mean that everyone lives in truth the same way. A person like Havel might write high-minded plays with the nature of communism, while a person on the other end of the spectrum, like the shopkeeper, might just not display a sign with a communist slogan. Both are valid ways of living in truth, because both are examples of people who refuse to be part of a system that humiliates and degrades them. No matter who you are or what your circumstance, Havel believed that the oppressed always have within themselves the power to remedy their own powerlessness. The ideal of freedom can never be extinguished, even in the most despicable of regimes, Havel argued. As long as one person refuses to let the system give complete power over their lives, there will always be hope for freedom. After publishing this essay, Havel was in prison from 1979 to 1983. And while in prison, the Irish playwright Samuel Beckett dedicated his short play Catastrophe to him. By 1989, Havel was imprisoned again during the commemorations for a protester who had died of self-immolation to protest against the 1968 invasion. A petition was organised to release Havel, who was released on parole eventually. But by 1989, something had changed. Before, only a few people would ever speak out or put their aim on a petition for fear of reprisals. But when Havel initiated a petition calling for democracy, he received tens of thousands of signatures, compared to the meagre few hundred for Charter 77. Dissent was now finally widespread. By November 1989, the Berlin Wall fell, sending shockwaves throughout the Eastern Bloc. Huge numbers of people took to the streets. By November 20th, the number of protesters had grown from an already whopping 200,000 people on the streets to half a million. People jingled their keys in the sign of new doors opening, but also as a jab to the authorities saying, it's time to pack up and go home. By the 28th, the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia pledged to relinquish power and end the one-party state that existed for four decades. This surreal event became known as the Velvet Revolution because it was a near-bloodless revolution spontaneously enacted by the people. Havel was launched the head of the newly founded group Civic Forum and was quickly elected as president in the first free election of his adult life. But this was a position Havel was hesitant to take, explaining that I had neither aspired to this position nor strived to attain it. Destiny had indeed played a strange joke on me, as if telling me through all those people have persuaded me to accept office. Since you're so smart, now it's your chance to show everyone You've criticised. Show us the right way to do things. Showing his character, Havel's first ever presidential address was not a triumphant celebration, but quite a solemn speech, where he urged every citizen to acknowledge that they were all co-creators of the totalitarian nightmare they had recently awoken from. Upon assuming the presidency, Havel opposed any efforts to strip former communist officials of their civil rights or engage in other punitive actions, since, as he famously claimed, all of us were co-creators. By 1993, Czechoslovakia ceased to exist, becoming two separate states, the Czech Republic and Slovakia. As president, Havel was respected greatly for his moral authority, but many of his decisions confused fellow Czechs. For example, despite all the hardships he personally experienced, he warned against any sort of reprisals against former communist officials. 
While Czechoslovakia was still in existence, Havel disbanded arms and munitions productions, stating that he did not think it was ethical to produce arms for the world's armies, guerrillas, and gangs. At times, Havel's moral convictions made him seem quite aloof to the everyday wants and needs of the newly founded republic. But keep in mind that the president's power was mainly symbolic under the Czech constitution, with real power vested in the prime minister. However, Havel did all he could, using his presidential veto power over 30 times over his 10-year career in political office. Havel often invoked his veto powers to protect the rule of law and political plurality. Havel also played a significant role in the establishment of a Senate, a constitutional court, and an ombudsman office. Havel was renowned for his amateurish yet kind of endearing style of politics. He had never held political office, but all of a sudden had been hurled into the scene. In the long halls of Prague Castle, his secretaries apparently used to use scooters to get around faster, and in 1990, Havel invited rock star Frank Zappa to be his cultural advisor. Though at times unpopular at home, Havel rapidly ascended international prominence, meeting US President George Bush in 1990 and addressing both houses of Congress. But Havel's personality kind of transcended politics. He met with religious leaders like the Dalai Lama and Pope John Paul. For his undying commitment to human rights, Havel received numerous awards and accolades, including the Gandhi Peace Prize, the Philadelphia Liberty Medal, and the US Presidential Freedom Medal. Havel completed his second term as president in 2003, stepping down from office to return to writing and speaking out for victims of totalitarianism across the globe. He published his experience as president in his memoirs To the Castle and Back in 2007. Though no longer in politics, Havel stayed busy as part of the Human Rights Foundation's International Council Chair and advisory member of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. After an eventful, unpredictable life, Havel died on December 18, 2011, a few hours earlier than Kim Jong-il, the supreme leader of North Korea. Quite the contrast in obituaries. Havel's death was met by tributes from world leaders like Barack Obama and David Cameron, praising his principled and morally focused leadership. Unlike many politicians, Havel put ethics far, far above the realm of politics, a lesson many world leaders still refuse to learn today. It's safe to say we probably won't find a more reluctant yet moral leader like Havel to come to prominence ever again. Havel once wrote that, when the time is ripe, an unarmed man on the street can disarm an entire division of soldiers. When I first read this, I thought he was kind of being silly and just a little bit idealistic, but the evidence is there in the Velvet Revolution, an environment of dissent that might have never come without Havel's undying criticism of the communist regime. It is hard to describe Havel as anything politically because he was seemingly a man above politics. Though he did speak extensively about the importance of the separation of powers, the universal right to vote, the authority of the rule of law, the importance of freedom of expression, and the viability of private ownership. But Havel didn't emptily praise institutions. He praised people. Havel saw these institutions protected as sphere for the individual to live in truth, to express themselves, and live authentic lives free from the course of state. And that was why they were valuable. Not because they were just special in and of themselves, because they were an extension of human flourishing. Being such a towering figure of the history of the Czech Republic, you'd expect Prague to be littered with ornate monuments to the deceased Havel. However, my favourite monument is back in Dublin. When I returned home from the Czech Republic, I visited a place called St. Patrick's Cathedral in the middle of the city, where there is a monument to Havel. Not a giant statue of him looking heroic, no special plaques or grand structure. Instead, Havel's monument is two chairs with a table in between a tree, providing some shade for anyone sitting down. It is one of many all over the world. They are called Havel's Places. 
The two chairs and table represent the willingness of people to come together and discuss their differences. A humble monument to political plurality and free expression. I cannot think of a better way to encapsulate the life and legacy of Václav Havel. Thanks, Emil, for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Portraits of Liberty is written and hosted by me, Paul Meany, and produced by Landry Ayers. You can also visit libertarianism.org to find more shows like this. I hope to see you next time.